Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. I am very, very excited about today's guest and I've just finished reading his book. Uh, He's a farmer and a nature conservationist and most recently an author of a book entitled Bringing Back the Beaver, the story of one man's quest to rewild Britain's waterways. And it's Derek Gow. So Derek, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's really great to talk to you. No problem. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Sean. No worries, no worries. Um, now, we I've just read your book. I finished it yesterday. Uh, really enjoyed it. I think it's uh, one of the few kind of conservation books that had me uh, roaring laughing on several occasions. So congrats <laughs> on that uh, on that effort. Good. Have, have you had a good reception for it? Yeah, I mean, the reception has all been absolutely brilliant. Um, I, 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 it's incredibly flattering and incredibly humbling. Um, I, 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 you know, I wasn't quite sure you know, how people would take to the tale because it has, as I said, very little to do with beavers. It's it's about the story, about the ups and downs, the ins and outs, the funny bits and the sad bits. And, and yeah, it's really gratifying that people have enjoyed it um, as much as they have. Yeah. Well, that's kind of why I wanted to get you on, Derek, because um, we've had uh, Chris Jones and Sophie Pavel from the Beaver Trust on to talk specifically about beavers and why they're so fantastic. We've got a lot of uh, beaver believers that listen to the podcast now, I think. Um, but I really wanted to talk to you about your kind of career, I guess, and and um, what kind of projects you're working on and how that all came to be. So sure. can you start with um, maybe, you know, the early days or how you uh, how you kind of um, arrived at your career? <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, the early, how did I arrive at my career? I mean, it's like many of these things, just a random jumble of circumstance and events and, 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 and other things then happen. And before you know where you are, you're bringing by beavers, which you didn't really expect to do at all at the beginning. Yeah. Um, so I suppose, I mean, my, my interest in, in nature conservation or, or certainly wildlife began when it was very small. Um, as was done in those days, my mother kept a baby book, which um, was a tedious affair with kind of like cushioned covers and, and a kind of bluish kind of mantle. And, and in it, she took lots and lots of the most embarrassing photographs I've ever seen of myself in, in this life. Yeah. Um, our farmers' parties and later life excluded. But but I mean, the whole idea was to chart your kind of younger years from, from you being, um, you know, this kind of like... Um, um, you know, tiny baby right off to the point in time where you went to school. Anyway, to cut a long story short, um, in it they record your earliest ambitions, and one of my earliest ambitions, for some strange reason, was to be a zookeeper. So um, I was articulating that idea when um, I guess I was um, three or four. And um, but again, you know, I, you never give much of a thought to it. I, I read Gerald Durrell's books. I guess so I was an yeah. avid reader when I was ten or, or eleven. I read the books then. I became really enchanted with you know his barefoot beagles and trips overseas to catch all manner of of incredibly unusual creatures. And then, of course, as as he settled down and um, and built the zoo in Jersey, with the idea that this zoo wasn't just going to be somewhere where you just brought animals for, for people to gawp at them. It was going to have a, a purpose that was infinitely more salient. And that purpose was to save creatures from extinction by captive breeding them uh, with a view to returning them to, to where they come from when the world was a better place. Yeah. And anything what people forget is now is that, that that way of thinking about what a zoo was or should be was absolutely revolutionary. Um, Zoos just existed really, you know, pretty much for entertainment at the time. They were there, you know, holding single animals or people's ex-pets, whatever. They were there basically for entertainment and nothing else. I mean, sure, they were all kind of a like Victorian attraction, weren't they? Well, they were. I mean, you know, they were not only Victorian. I mean, they were, you know, you had kind of relatively august organizations like the zoological societies of Bristol or London, which were these kind of, um, you know, big organizations with lots of kind of 
be whiskered old Victorian gents and and top hats and bowlers going along to you know to drink you know to to, to eat a poached zebu um, at their AGM every year and and it was it was you know it was a sciencey type of of kind of background with kind of vulgar hordes only being let in on certain days. Um, you know, combined with that, you know, you had people who were just, you know, circus entertainers and, and fairground folk. And I mean, of course, they kept animals quite unambiguously, you know, to fill fill their hearts full of money. So the idea that you were going to have a, a zoo, which um, which 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 was, you know, had another purpose mm. um, was um, was was just, was just, you know, just not thought of at all at that time. It was, um, you know, so Durrell was, you know, really well before. Um, you know, his time in suggesting that um just let me fix bloody phone. Um that um <laughs> that you could do something different with them. And um and, and he collected things like volcano rabbits and golden lion tamarins and eye eyes and, and they wrote about them and, and and brought them back to a zoo. Now of course, you know, this very simple idea in the end was infinitely more complex than he could ever have imagined. And, um, of course, it proved very difficult in the end to return some of these species to the wild. So I guess, you know, that's where my interest began. I had worked in agriculture, you know, both as a kid on hill farms, rounding up sheep at weekends. And, and eventually I was given a Shetland sheep as a birthday present. And I built up my own small collection of rare breed sheep again at a time where, where these old breeds were incredibly uncommon. And dying out, some of them, were they? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Rare Survival Trust, I think, was formed in 1974. Um, you know, things like the Lincolnshire Curly Coat Pig, you know, became extinct, you know, just before that, you know, possibly in the late 1960s. And, and it was this kind of like wonderful old cultural um, kind of kind of seam of livestock which had been brought to the British Isles at different times. Things like Cotswold sheep are believed to be developed by the Romans. The Soy sheep existing out on 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 the island of Soy, and then ultimately in Herta when they were moved there. Um, you know, in, in the nineteen thirties when St Kilda was abandoned, well, were animals that that were 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 Norse. They were. You know, they were animals, you know, from perhaps the, um, you know, the fourth or fifth century AD or older. So you had all these wonderful creatures with these wonderful stories, which looked amazing. And and I kept many of them um, when I was small. Um, I did not yeah. imagine at that time that, you know, I was going to, you know, uh, work on to, 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 to really start to, 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 to become involved with, you know, the, the amazing creatures that, you know, I've now had the opportunity to work with at the time I decided I was going to work in agriculture as, as a livestock auctioneer. And I did that for five years. Um, at the end of that time, when I was made redundant, I was given the opportunity to manage a collection of rare breed domestic livestock at a place called Palace Rig country park near Cumbernauld. And then ultimately when that finished, I was asked if I, I would run the zoo there, which I absolutely did not want to do. Um, but in 1990, I was lucky enough to go to Gerald Durrell Zoo um, on Jersey to meet the most amazing bunch of people I've, I think I've ever met in, in my life. You know, people who were working on, you know, um, Mauritius pigeons and all manner of different threatened species the world over and who were just the most inspiring bunch of individuals you could ever imagine. And I came away from it realizing that, you know, one, the, 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 you know, there was this guild of, 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 of ability who devoted so much of, of their time and, and, you know, really ran so much risk to do things on, on behalf of, of species, you know, the prospects for which were really incredibly bleak. Yeah. And I decided at that point that, you know, if there was the opportunity that I would be interested in doing the same sort of thing for, for British wildlife species. And um, I was going to say, yeah, so you changed over then to kind of focus more locally on, on what we were losing at home, didn't you? Well, I mean, at the time, of course, in the early 1990s, you know, if you're not involved in nature conservation in Britain, you look at it and think, well, you know, you've got big organisations like the, the Nature Conservancy Council, which then became English Nature, which has now become or became Natural England, then became what is? Oh, yeah, English Nation, then Natural England. You know, you had, you know, the the you know Scottish Natural Heritage. You had these big government organisations, big organisations like the RSPB. You know, and you just assume that these organisations are going to be stuffed full of people who've got everything pinned down and everything will be sorted and correct, and in Britain everything will be, um, you know, functioning well. And and then as you become more and more involved with the um, 
the conservation of, of a broad range of species, you realize actually, you know, that's not true. There's a lot of a lot of lot of different things that that can 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 happen when um, when you start to sort of like probe beneath the seams of 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 or the back seams of, of nature conservation. Yeah, and it's clear from the book. Um, you you kind of talk about it a lot that there's been times where you've been really really frustrated with the kind of um, you described as inertia of some of these big organisations and of the government to actually do anything practical for conservation. So you kind of would it be right in saying you kind of took matters into your own hands at times? <laughs> well, I'm not going to admit to taking any matters into my own hands. But what I will say is that the more the more you looked at the reasons why uh, which people presented for not doing something, yeah, the more you 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 understood those reasons. The more you looked at it and thought, you know, actually, this is a heap of shit. You know, it's just nonsense that you make up for for reasons that I've never been able to understand. I am sure that they're they're wrapped up with. I mean, I'm sure some people think they're right. They read those IUCN guidelines, and unless you can dot every I and cross every T in triplicate, then they they would say you shouldn't be doing anything. But you know, Christ, when you look at the state of the world, when you look at you know what was was you know where the tropical forests were when I was a child, you know where you know not only that, I mean, you know, you look at a British landscape where there were wetlands and edge habitats, where there were farm ponds, where there were glowworms, where water voles were abundant, and you see what's left now, mm. and and it's absolutely obvious that, that we are looking at at at, at this mass hemorrhage. Of, of 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 wildlife in a, in a way that I think we're only just beginning to appreciate. You know, it it it's it's and this is a long-standing process. I mean, as soon as we dominate the landscape of the British Isles, which possibly is something we start to do in the Bronze Age, we 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 look at species that oppose us in any way that cause us any and you know any any inconvenience, and and, and our response is always the same. Yeah, and, and that is we annihilate them, you know. And and you know, if you look at something like that, mm. I mean, the beavers were different because the beavers were valuable. They were things that didn't ever really stand in our way, but because they had enormous commercial worth, we pursued them with the same sort of assiduous zeal that the 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 people who are poaching elephants or tigers and in, in the Far East today also demonstrate. You know, we were just really greedy. We wanted everything. Yeah. We wanted it now, and and the idea that we are a species that's ever gone for a sustainable option in, in the past is, of course, complete nonsense. We've taken everything until there was nothing left to take, or until the reason for taking them ran out. So, if you you know look at what we did, for example, to 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 the wolf, which was an animal that sure had some sort of you know, commercial effect, which we were terribly afraid of because we were superstitious and ignorant in the dark because the barons and the nobles and the church told us it was an animal um, that had come straight from hell and that Jesus was the good shepherd. Well, you know, we responded by 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 basically, you know, wiping that animal genocidally from the face of this island and, and in ways that, you know, had nothing to do with wildlife management or the resolution of a problem. You know, we, we burnt them, we flayed them, we sewed their mouths shut we we gouged them you know there's there just was no abomination we did not employ and you know we enjoyed it that's that's the thing that's that that's most disturbing about us as a species is that there is something perhaps in us all um but with some of us better able to temper it than others that really is you know it's it's in incredibly dark in the same way that chimpanzees torture the monkeys um that they catch you know we're we're very capable of doing the same so when you look at something like the bad all that's ongoing now or you look at what the guys in the north are doing with the birds of prey the parallels are quite clearly there in some things we don't change absolutely yeah yeah um and the beaver i guess is a good example of of that what you're saying that you know it's a a species that we did drive out and um even now with kind of the efforts to to re-establish them in the country there's still quite a bit of opposition from certain factions that you know see them as a threat to their land or their livelihood um or their profitability of their farm for example um, yeah. That doesn't change. There's always a fight to be had when it comes to these kind of um, conservation issues and reintroductions in particular. I think, um, is it a level of distrust that people have with something new um, in the environment or 
what do you see is the main factor for kind of this opposition to reintroducing once native species? Ignorance. It's ignorance and it's it's basically a set of people. You have one set of people if you look at a, 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 an old style farming mentality that, that is, you know, I is a settler mentality. It's it's yeah. the whole idea that, you know, you're out there to to tame this wilderness, to drain those swamps, to to push the edges back, to cut out the scrub, to kill the predators, to ensure everything tidy everything. You, is tidy, neat and straight lines and you have dominated that earth. So you're standing astride it, you know, you're you know, if 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 there were, you know I you know, and and, and that that kind of way of viewing the world is the same kind of way that the early settlers in, in you know, Australia and New Zealand and, and the Americas and, and in so many other parts of the former um, global empires treated the land and the wild animals and, you know, the people as well. There was no difference made between the head of a wolf or the head of a Penobscot Indian child. In, in 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 early settler America, those bounties were still paid by the British, and they were paid because you essentially viewed the animals and the Indians in the same way. Um, so it's it's that kind of attitude, and that kind of attitude, you know, it dies bloody hard. Yeah. Um, with regard to the angling stuff, the angling stuff is just you know, it's just a bunch of tweedy old farts. We've convinced themselves there's a problem. There's not a single scintillance of science to support their contention, and yet they're used to yammering and 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 and, and being listened to. And, and to be quite frank, I'm I'm just done with it. Yeah. Um. At the end of it all, you know, even if you said that the there was an issue between beavers and Atlantic salmon, which is very highly unlikely, given that the two species have co-evolved over a, a period of something like forty million years. Then, you know, and okay, I appreciate Atlantic salmon having a terribly bad time of it. But when you look at something like the beaver and you look at how how grim the situation that confronts us on this island is, where one in seven species is threatened with extinction, where, you know, perhaps you've seen a 75% decline in insects, where everybody who notices nature and whatever manifest form it has will tell you that their interest is failing. Well, even if there was an issue with Atlantic salmon, to deny the riparian landscapes the beaver is to say, well, I'll tell you what, we can't improve a landscape, a life prospect for anything else. We can't improve it for, for water voles or for white clawed crayfish. We can't, we can't create an, an, an environment which is 80% richer in frogs because the ponds have reformed. Mm. I mean, where, where the beavers are on my land, I mean, they've blocked the old deep Victorian gutters that take all the water off faster than you can click your fingers, hurtling it down in sheets to hit the village at the bottom of the valley or storing it in the summer in, in great big swamps that they're reforming. So there's a flow there that other species can use. Yeah. If it weren't for the beaver dams and the beavers in the summertime, there would be no fish because there would be no water anywhere in yeah. the environment where those fish are swimming now. And just there would be no hunting opportunities for otters. So the argument that we say, well, we're going to focus on one migratory game fish and there can be no beavers because of that, you know, it's just thick. There's no other way to describe it. There's no justification for it. And that's where I come back to my original response. It's ignorant. Yeah, and that's the... It's as simple as that. To summarize for some of the audience who might not know, their their argument is that um, the salmon won't be able to pass their dams on their migration upstream. Isn't that it? That's it. They're not going to be able to do it. And yeah, there may at times be... Um, the issues when the dams are fresh and new before they degrade, before they become more complex, before they develop big basal pools. But, you know, there's a simple solution. And that simple solution is you don't protect the dams. If the dams are in a place where they're not protected, where they're not, you know, they're not backing up this massive beaver-generated wetland with breeding lodges and, and water bowls and grey wagtails feeding on their heads and all these other things, if they're just simple structures, you just take them out. Yeah. And that's it. If you take them out, then there's yeah. no problem and the fish can pass through and that's what you do. It's a simple, simple solution. They're just this argument, you know, it just does not need to be. 
But then compounding that, yeah. you know, and, and and this is where I guess you know one of the most frustrating elements of it has been is it's just I mean you can't I suppose really expect the politicians to to do anything much. There have been good people and bad people over time when you work with a species like this for a quarter of a century. I don't get all that worked up one way or the other about what a Secretary of State says, because to be quite frank, they'll be gone in no time at all. So what individual Secretaries of State think or, or do is neither here nor there. Michael Gove, by and large, well, absolutely actually behaved incredibly well. And it's fair to say that without him and without his direct interference, there would not be white-tailed eagles now soaring over the um, the Isle of Wight. And it's probably very likely that, that we'd still be fighting a rearguard battle to do anything much with beavers. That man changed everything. Mm. So at the moment, though, though conservative politics are not mine, I would say that the people you know, that we have encountered uh, in that party at this point in time who've had a say in this have behaved well, very well. They've helped at a time mm. and in a landscape where, where most other people would not have done that. Um, but the worst has yeah. been, you know, it's been the inertia of the, of the nature conservation authorities. I mean, now you've got NGOs, um, you know, lining up to do things with beavers. And to an extent, I, I suppose they've just been a bit hesitant. But the ones that should have acted, you know, based on science, the, the big bodies that, that, that you know, are, are discharged with improving the, the prospects of nature, um, you know, have actually, you know, really been... In some of the most obstructive um, organisations containing some of the most obstructive individuals there have been in the past, and they've made life very difficult at times. Yeah. And one of the things you said in the book um, that you were quite surprised by was actually sometimes coming across officials that, you know, the, their party line, I suppose, was anti-beaver, but they were very much personally on board. Um, you've encountered that quite a bit, right? Um, yes, there have been people like that. There have been people, you know, but we've had some, you know, depending on your perspective, I mean, some of those people have been remarkably helpful. I mean, I recall one meeting, which I think I mentioned in the book, where we sat down with some guys from the National Farmers Union at their request when the River Otter uh, Beaver Project was on the go. And they looked at us and we looked at them and they said, right, well, you know, we want to work on from here. We don't particularly want to have a fight about this. We're not going to die over a few beavers on the otter. Can we just agree that we're not going to surprise each other with bad news? And on that basis, you know, can we proceed? And, and I think the most incredible thing about the beaver thing is, yes, there has been and there will be a considerable amount of fighting with regard to what this animal can and cannot do in our modern developed landscapes, yeah. both now and going forward. But that it actually has it's 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 created some incredibly enduring alliances and friendships as well sometimes the 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 best of which have have come from the 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 land use groups that you'd least expect to help and sometimes also from the individ, from individuals who you'd least expect to help so i mean what this teaches you is you 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 embark on on this course of restoring a species, this is deeply controversial, perhaps, as the beaver, is that you just don't know where your next set of, of opponents are going to come from. And equally, you know, it's, it's odd how you find that the most unlikely of allies in the places where you'd least yeah. expect to find them. And that once they've made their mind up to help, they, they will go to, to lengths that the, the pompous nature conservation um, you know, uh, you know, buddies just just simply won't. Yeah. So it's it's been you know really quite a a, a remarkable learning curve with regard to, to 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 just how the actions of individuals are are, are ne never really entirely predictable. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Before we get into the kind of you know rewilding movement and things like that, just going back to to kind of um your history, you you came out of um. Jersey and um, started work on British wildlife. And then at what point did you, you bought your farm and you uh, made it quite a diverse and unusual livestock farm? Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I, I left Jersey. I, I was at Jersey summer school in 1990. And oh gosh, about 1994, I was asked by a company called Sea Life Centres to come down and set up their now for forgotten first mainland zoo for, for British wildlife. And, and they had this idea that they were going to set up these incredibly, um, you know, clever American zoo type exhibits whereby people could come into buildings and see dippers swimming past them underwater and, and, and water bowls underground and, and, and badgers and, 
in, in underground sets where you could wander through and you could smell them and hear them and see them. And it, it was all incredibly immersive. And it was, it was you know, way before its time. It, it, it failed by the time we got to 1998 because the directors who were involved at that time simply couldn't be bothered with anything that was that complex. But I'm sure in the end, something like it will rise at some stage again because it was just incredibly smart. But to, to make this work for British animals, it meant that you couldn't just have one or two. You had to have backup breeding programs so that you knew if one animal died and you had created bespoke exhibits for the species, then you were easily going to be able to turn around again and, and you know, you had a number in reserve. So it's, it's kind of like, um, yeah. you know, it was like an animal vending machine, but with considerably more compassion. And, um, and to do this, of course, we had to work with a whole range of different organizations who all had their, different own, their own different research and conservation agendas, and it became the most fascinating project. Anyway, I, I finished that in 1998. I then went on to run another project in Kent, um, you know, until 2003. And um, by 2003, it was obvious there was there was significant and enduring interest in the idea of using captive breeding to reintroduce species that that were fading fast from the landscape, like water voles. Yeah. And and the more I worked with water voles, the more you looked at the habitats they required, the more you began to realize that this little animal wasn't capable of creating the complex wetland environments which were open and sunny that it needed. It, it, it was, you know, as soon as it as the trees closed over and the plants died back with a you know out of lack of light, then that was it. Water voles were completely stuffed. So it became increasingly apparent to me that there had to be something driving yeah. the living space for these small creatures. And and eventually I went to Poland, I went to Germany, I went to France. And you look at the, the habitats the beavers create and you realize, well, it's the beavers. It's absolutely the beavers. So um, at the time, there was there was discussion in Scotland about reintroducing beavers and um and there had been a lot of talk, but nothing much had happened. And I went to see the the zoo that um, that um, had been charged with trying to figure out how you'd bring beavers in from continental Europe because there were no Eurasian beavers anywhere in Britain, not even in zoos. Right. And uh, I met a guy in charge, and you know, and he told me that there were all these problems that you had to have these filter systems in for the water. That this was an issue. That that was an issue. They weren't sure that he could keep something as big and active as a beaver in, in, you know, in, in its rabies quarantine period intact and they would just fade and die. And the more you looked at it, the more you looked at it again, it's thought, you know, actually... that was six months quarantine, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was six months quarantine. You looked at it thought, well, actually, this all sounds also like a heap of shit. You know, what you've done before you've actually even attempted to resolve the situation is just surrendered without trying. And that, I'm afraid, in, in human beings and and... And in institutions faced with any great degree of complexity is a really common first response is you don't even try. You just have a lot of big windy meetings with your big farty friends. And before you know where you are, you give up. So I decided that, frankly, I couldn't see there was a problem. I spoke to the guys in, 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 in Germany and the guys in Poland. I spoke to some of the old circus people who were still left. And they all told me it wasn't going to be a problem at all. And to be quite frank, they were practical people, and I placed I had a lot more faith in what they said than I had in the um, the protestations of scientists. So we just did it. We just I just went to Poland in 1995. We we got some beavers from Poppy Elno, which was the state farm set up in the time of Stalin to provide them for the fur trade. We brought them in. They were quarantined at Blackpool right. Zoo. They all lived through it, no problem. It was easy to do. It was really, really easy. How, how many did you bring in at that point? Mm, I think at that, that point we brought in two pairs, one of which had, had something like they had a, a big litter, maybe something like four or five babies, um, and they all lived through the quarantine period without any problem. And then it was, a, you know, again, at a very early time in things, there was, um, you know, nothing had been done. The idea of um, releasing beavers, you know, in England was 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 just the preserve of the lunatics and the dead. And um, and yeah, it was quite obvious as soon as you started to talk to, to media about it, as soon as you started to talk to people about it, there was huge interest and huge support for the idea. So um, in 2000, Kent Wildlife Trust approached me with a view to putting up this big enclosure um, around a reserve they had called Ham Fen. Could we supply beavers for it? If we put up an enclosure, we didn't need a, a license to release them because they weren't a dangerous wild animal. 
the whole thing seemed perfectly sensible. We got beavers from the Norwegians. All went really well. Uh, and then halfway through the quarantine period, DEFRA came out of the woodwork and said that they had jurisdiction and that we couldn't let them go and that we needed an extra special license, which they couldn't define. And it was all going to be terribly difficult. And by the way, would we not rather that we just killed them or sent them back to Norwegian so there wasn't any of this embarrassment. Right. And it was the first time you'd ever encountered this as a response. And you looked at these people and thought, you know, actually, no, you can fuck off. <laughs> yeah. And um, and and it, yeah, and at that point in time, we we just kind of really started to dig in. And from there on, yeah. and, and I suppose this is, you know, when you look at it, you look at it, you know, twenty odd years later, and you think, are we just, are we just developing a bunker mentality as individuals because we've been in this hole for so long, or is it one of these things yeah. that you know, you become cynical, or is it realism? And the long and the short of it was yeah. that, you know, at the time, the beginning, it was a jolly hard fight. In the end, they had to give in, um, and and we discovered that. Um, the jurisdiction they claimed to have had, they, they'd lied about all along. And, um, and and it just showed you really at the end of it all that, you know, you look at people that, you know, in authority, that you know, you've always thought, you know, it would be people who understood what they were doing. They were sensible. They were balanced. They, they you know, were there because they, they were prepared to act in a, a way that was reasonable and understood. And you realize, you know, actually, this is just a great big charade. And, um, and yeah, yeah, I suppose it's fair to say that, um, yeah, you began to realize that um, the, the obstacles to beaver reintroduction were not going to be real ones. They were going to be ones that were entirely made up by people. Um, and people and frankly, offices, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, people in offices yeah. who, who have a job also who have a career that demands or, you know, the the I mean, I'm sure some of them do care, but an awful lot of them are really worried about their pensions. They're worried about not rocking any boats. If you sail a boat into stormy water, then it's going to rock like hell. You don't want to do that because that's when, um, you know, the people above you are going to pay attention to what you're doing. And, and then you might not get the mouse mat you've been promised or, or your own individual desk as opposed to hot desking and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, actually, for a whole ton of people in life, scarily, that sort of thing is really important. And, and they'll do everything yeah. they possibly can to ensure stasis. And of course, the beaver stuff is is yeah. not one that, that it's not a, an issue that produces stasis. It's a, an issue that produces progress and then hope. Yeah. And you didn't want either of those things. Yeah. So then, two thousand and three, then was a bit of a turning point. You did you buy your farm in two thousand and three and start breeding um, some species for reintroduction? Birth? Yeah. Well, in, in two thousand and three, I'd have had enough of working for other organisations, and I absolutely did not want to work for a nature conservation trust or charity where you had. Um, you know, a range of trustees, all of whom had their own ideas about how something should function. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I came to realization a long time ago that I'm a dictator. I, I don't really work very well when, when consensus is on the go. What you do is you try and understand a subject, you make your mind up, you speak to one or two people who are good and sound, and then you do it. That's it. You just do it. You don't bother debating the thing any further. You just do it. And... Um, so, yeah, I, I moved to Kent, bought a small holding initially. Then the, the old guy who was farming next door to us decided to retire because he just really had enough. And I bought 120 acres of, of, of kind of wet dairy land that had been wrenched out of um, of the old Bronze Age moors probably 35 years before with, you know, great big deep ploughs and chains and, you know, by Hampshire farmers who were given huge grants to, to make a landscape that could never produce much into something that looked like green farmland. Mm. And um, I bought that and, and I added to that in time to the, the point where we own about 300 acres now. And, and the whole, the whole idea was to, was to farm it, was to, it was to, you know, do what I was doing with wildlife, but farm at the same time. And the more intensive your effort became to farm, because of course you couldn't farm, you know, on an economic basis than 300 acres, the more you rented more land to build a bigger and bigger and bigger farming empire with this constant ambition to have, you know, two and a half or 3,000 lambs to sell every year at an average of whatever the average was, £55 a head. And, and you were going to be able to come out of this at the end of the day with a reasonable profit. And, and one, it never happened. And two, to do it, you know, it didn't take long before you start to look at what you're doing, this conventional way of doing with 
pesticides and wormers and high stocking densities, you know, on the land through the winter with considerable soils leaching off into the water courses, even though we'd fence them out to protect them for the sheep before you realize that actually, you know, what you're doing was profoundly wrong. And year on year, the more you did it, the harder you tried. Yeah. And you're a slave to it as well all the time, right? Yes, you're a slave to it completely. Yeah. You know, you just, and, and, and it's one of these things that when you're doing it, you know, it's like being in, a, a, I suppose, a relationship that's going wrong or, or in a car crash in slow motion is that the, the more you realize it's not the right thing to do, the harder you try to make it work. And I don't know. You know, this is a, it's a really essential human quality, which, again, I'm sure is in us all. And, and it's very easy to see in others, but not so easy to see in yourself, especially not when you're involved. So mm. the long and the short of it was that, um, you know, I, I did that for 10 years. And at the end of it, you know, you just look at where you are. And, and the thing that really did it for me was that, you know, we'd built some pond and pool complexes because I wanted to. We'd reintroduce water bowls into those because I wanted them for training purposes. And and in the in the 10 years, I mean, between 2006 and the 14 years and 2006 and now, very occasionally when I get up in the morning and go out to check my sheep, I'd run around them on a quad bike. And you see this bird about the size of a small goose, you know, which we'd, we'd a brown bird with speckles on it, which we get up with a this long curved bill calling you know, it's got a wonderful whooping call. Yeah. And you look and think, oh, my God, it's a curlew. And 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 the curlews have all gone from here. Yeah. You know, if you spoke to the old farmers, they'll tell you there was a sound of spring. And, and they brought such delight and they remember them clearly and, and they were everywhere. And yet in the time I've been here, I suppose if I've seen a curlew um, – Three times, and I've certainly not seen a curlew. You know, they haven't been back in five years. That's it. And they've always been single birds. And, yeah. and you look at the ponds you put in and the bits you did, and, and you realize in the end that these, these bits that you think you're making a huge effort for, it's no good. There's no food in the soil. There are no invertebrates. If there are invertebrates, you poison them in the soil. It's just too hard and too compacted for this bill with the bird with this big, delicate bill to probe down into it to find any of the, the invertebrate life that it's looking for. And and the more you looked at it, the more you realized that actually this way, it was a really sad situation. I mean, the birds that were coming, you know, were perhaps the last of the old birds nearing the end of their lives. Maybe it was the same bird coming back to the spot where it had been born. Where it used to find food, yeah. Because the very high nest site fidelity. And, and and it was coming by to see if there were there were there were any mates, if there was any prospect of life, the last of the birds that survived the silage and the big bales. And and the answer was, you know, no, there was none. It had lived its entire life probably without breeding. And as I say, I haven't seen a curlew in five years, and the chances are it's dead. Yeah. And and it just made me feel so sad. You know, as as a single bird, as a single example of what what we'd got so wrong, that bird really did it for me, and I'll never forget it. And and in the end, you just begin to look at what you're doing, and from being in a position where you view it with a relative degree of enthusiasm, you know, over I suppose a, a three year period, you begin to view it with a real degree of repugnance. Mm. And that did mean to say I didn't love the animals we had. We had about 150, well, we had 100 suckler cows, 120 suckler cows, about one and a half thousand breeding sheep. And, you know, some of those cows, you know, we'd had, you know, from from a time when there were little, little calves and you see them grow up and their daughters are there and they're big, calm animals and you've had your ups and downs with them. But, you know, you, they're still there looking at you and you're still there stroking their nose and it's like a a soft, sweaty velvet. And and when the time came when you said, look, you know, actually we're going to have to finish. This is just not the way I want to do this. You know, you look at these animals and think, well, I just, I, I mean, I did not go to the dispersal sales. I could not bear to see them go and be split apart from their pals and their daughter. I just, it was not for me. Yeah. So things like this is come they don't come for free and they don't come for the for, for free either in the sense of um of um no, it's not really money it's it's emotion it's 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 an emotional cost but 
you know, you once you've done it, you dread doing it, it when it happens. It's appalling, and then when it's over, you do look at it and think, you know, actually, there's a new future. It's a new future that's more difficult because, of course, it's not a new future that's charted and certain in the way that farming was certain. Mm. But it's 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 a, a new future that's that just it 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 means you have to use your mind. You have to look at things to try to understand things that are are complex or maybe you know have never been thought through at all, and and then decide that right, okay, you know, see this area where we've got this 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 slope of wet and. And it, and, it, and, it, and it doesn't drain well. Well, maybe what we need to do is fill that fill that full of things like greater tussocks edge, these enormous triffid-like plants that can live to 100 years of age that provide you know nesting habitats and they're understory for water voles and harvest mice and warblers and, and overwintering habitats for insects. Maybe we just, we need to change the structure of this land. We've spent so long flattening it and and pulling the big rocks out and draining it that we've completely lost track of the fact that this landscape was everywhere. It was up and down with pits and pools and fallen trees and wet soaks and streams that are not there anymore and quaking bogs. And and we've just, we've just buggered the whole lot. Yeah. So it's a different way of viewing the land now. I mean, it, there are still some sheep here that are still cattle, but of a different type. And, and as we move forward, trying to use these animals without insecticides and pesticides to, and we try to select animals. So there's some water buffalo coming. I saw this. Yeah. Um, I think the week after next to, to start gouging big holes in the ground and, and, you know, really just start creating bloody ponds wherever they feel like doing it. Yeah. Um, then, then we're choosing animals that are creating life space for other small things rather than choosing animals because they're going to have a live weight gain of whatever over you know, a period of a month yeah. or they're going to, you know, hit the waitrose carcass, best, whatever else, you know, we're not doing that anymore. What we're doing is we're looking at creatures that are going to become the architects for other life and selecting them as the creatures we want to have on this land. And that means that there are things now, by accident, beavers escape from one of our breeding pens in the middle of one farm about 10 years ago. There is a good population them forming up in the headwaters of the Tamar now on land where very many of the people who have them are delighted by their presence. Good. We have Iron Age pigs Good. digging in 120 acres to make the land anything but flat and to create ephemeral pools and ponds and to, to forage and things like the bramble and, and, the, and, and the rosehip and, and the old medieval hedges where we've taken down all the fences and enabled them access to, to go in and forage on this so they can come out and shit the seeds right the way through the land to the point where it turns again into thorn savanna. Yeah. Um, we have cattle with big horns and, and bull groups that fight and, and get angry with each other so that, you know, when they're hot and frustrated in a July day and the, the flies are biting them black and blue, they go into woodland and smash down trees. And the whole idea is that the onus of the big animals is that the big animals are the makers of life space for the little ones. And then when we come to the little ones that simply can't get here because we so purged them from this land in the Middle Ages or Victorian times, you know we're going to get them and we're going to bring them back. And as the habitats form, we're going to fill them full of different lost guilds of perhaps amphibians. We're going to look at returning things like triops, these wonderful little trilobite-type tadpole oh, yeah. shrimps that need the kind of ephemeral wallows that wild boar make. And, and we're just going to look, you know, uh, whatever opportunities there are to, to fill this this 300 small, fragile acres um, that we own with, with all sorts of, 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 of different creatures. Yeah. And um, one of your kind of um, efforts on the farm is you are, you're breeding water voles um, in quite high numbers for reintroduction projects, aren't you? Yep. Yeah, I mean, we've got, I can't remember, somewhere in the region of about a thousand breeding animals. 
And every year, those animals can produce about, I don't know, two, um, about three and a half thousand babies. And in the time I've worked with them, I think probably we bred about somewhere in the region of about 25 to 30,000 water bulls. But we're not wow. winning. I mean, the species is, is, is still just slipping steadily. Yeah. It's no longer slipping steadily off the edge of the precipice. It's hurtling off the edge of the precipice and into the, the abyss below. And it's a whole combination of different things. And, and that's the really scary thing is that, you know, when you look at where we are in Britain and people, I mean, I was watching some shite advert for um, a program about Scotland yesterday, and they're talking about the wonderful, rather rugged highlands, you know, it's free nature and a landscape that's wild. And of course, it's all rubbish. You know, it's 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 a landscape that we've completely trashed because it was all forest. We've removed all the trees and we've dug up the roots where we possibly could get down to them. We've dominated every landscape there is on this island, you know, for the best part of of you know, somewhere in the region of you know eight, ten thousand years now, and, and the life that's left now is either the the big animals that we wanted to preserve to hunt. So that's why the deer are here, and yeah. the foxes still remain. And near everything else that was inconvenient, we destroyed. And when you start to look at things like but it's water voles and red squirrels and harvest mice and all these cutesy things that we now look at and think, gosh, you know, we're really going to have to make an effort to save these. And and, and despite the millions we spend on them, we see that 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 the, the species just slipping further and further and further away. It's because the, the the landscapes and the environments we 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 are used to them living in, and we think you know they should exist then again normally and naturally are the last fragile remnants that they clung to for as long as they could, and now they're just slipping away too. Yeah. So it's it's we live in a time when, though there's great hope, and you know we talked about the eagles flying over the Isle of Wight earlier on, and the most remarkable thing ever, you know, things like that 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 lamagar returning to to the the, yeah, the Peak maybe. District and, and living there for however many months it did. I mean, you know, it shows you that nature is a resilient thing. And it can bounce back and to give it the chance. And and the things can change and things can get better. Yeah. The reality is that the the the, the these things are the exception and, and and the rule is of of just tumbling tumultuous loss. Yeah. Um and that's what we've got to address. And and in some ways, we you know we live in incredibly interesting times. If we're living in the seventies and eighties and having these conversations, there'd be no debate about it. The money would all go into farming. The political support would be there for farming. There'd be a few bits of tinkling around the edges if everybody screamed loud enough. But in reality, it would be destroy, drain, burn, grub up all the normal stuff, business as usual, fertility meadows. You know, that were thousands of years old, just plow them under because if you don't plow them under now, somebody will come along and they'll put a triple SI designation on your land and you won't be able to do it. So, what do you do? You destroy it first. Yeah. So, but that's changing and it's changing now because, well, sadly, there's very, there's not as much left to destroy, but it's also because, um, you know, we're in a different world order now. Um, the um, the incoming in environment bill, twenty five year environment bill, yeah. if it's to mean anything, it means that you know we're going to have to to look at you know what we do with public money and 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 spend that you know by spending that money on public goods, whatever they may be, purer water, carbon capture, you know, purer air, more trees, more wetlands, you know, creating you know riparian woodlands along the edges of completely bare river corridors with a sheep of shorn everything out. Then, if we're going to spend public money on landowners, the, the, the genesis or the the, the the whole genesis of this is that you know we spend money doing things that are good for people, as opposed to just for the individuals that own the land. And, and I think that's going to be a various, without a shadow of doubt, but it will be watered down and it'll be difficult and it'll be a rocky starting point. But politically, if the politicians hold to this, we could start to see landscapes change on a significant scale to to the point where you know we still maintain the best farmland but we we farm in a different way with um you know sustainable soil use you know putting humus back into the soil you know restricting the use of pesticides certainly and 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 you know non-organic fertilizers and and then we look at the shape of the land as well and we start to appreciate that if we let scrub back and and let wetlands reform then then we're going to create these different areas of living space for other life but and that, that these areas are important in their own right and can't always just seen through the paradigm of a farming mindset yeah yeah 
Um, going back just a little bit to your point on kind of water voles and, and things clinging on, you know, on the very, very precipice. Um, I spoke with Elliot Newton, who you know from Citizen Zoo over the weekend. Yeah. Um, and he's just won funding to uh, reintroduce water voles back onto the Hogs Mill in Kingston. Yeah. Um, and I've thought and talked a lot about um, trying to do something similar in Ealing. Um, where I run Ealing Wildlife Group. Yeah. And to be honest, like when you were talking there, you know, I was feeling a little bit depressed, a little bit uh, pessimistic about <laughs> putting in all of this effort and getting all of this funding and everything to, to do a waterfall reintroduction project. But then the management going forward to try and keep that population just clinging on in kind of substandard habitats sometimes puts me off. What do you ever feel like that yourself or are you an eternal optimist that we just keep must keep pushing? I think we keep pushing. I think yeah. we keep pushing because you never know, you know, what, what, whether the example you say, what if Pimpite is going to have on other people for it? So for example, it was a lovely wee story told once about Richard Attenborough, mm. um, who, um, you know, obviously he was the film director and made Gandhi and all his other um, massive um, movie um, achievements. And um, and they interviewed him once. He made this film called Grey Owl about the story of this guy who who left Britain called Archie Bellini, went to Canada, became a trapper, ultimately was one of these penitent people who, who killed many, many things. And then, and then one day he comes across these orphan beavers sitting on top of the lodge and he's killed their parents the day before. And his Indian wife makes him hand rear them and 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 when he does, he looks at these wee things in a completely different way. These animals that were nothing more to him than currency, nothing more than you know the 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 the, the commodity, yeah. a commodity. You could exchange their their pelts for tobacco or whatever else. He said, yeah. you look at them and they're 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 crying in bed at night and holding each other's paws before they go to sleep. When you take them for walks so they get a bit older, beavers can waddle on their back feet for short distances. And these wee things are going up on their back feet and they're reaching their tiny paws up so they can grab his fingers and hold his hand as he goes for a walk. And the more you have to do with them and the more you interrelate with them, the more you, what you did repulses you utterly. Mm. And Richard Attenborough said, you know, I, I met this guy once. I went as a small kid to see him speak and show his early cine films um, in I think perhaps the Birmingham Arena. And he said, I was so impressed by this man. I promised myself that I, when I was a tiny boy that if I ever got to do what I wanted to do in life, which was make films, I were going to. I was going to make a film about his life, and he said I did it. It was a, you know, it was a, it was a flop in the cinema. It starred Pierce Brosnan. It was a clunky film. It just was not great. Mm. But he said I don't care whether it loses money or not. I promise myself I'll do it, and I've done it. Yeah. And 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 he said, and furthermore, you know, he he's so inspired my brother David that my brother David became what he is today. So I think inspiration is critically required and it's inspiration of people you are not going to get inspiration from big organizations what you'll get is more bitching more inertia more kicking the can down the road because you know it's the easiest thing to do whereas doing things is difficult and i think you know i know nothing of the habitats in ealing but but um, you know i've seen the hogs mill i've been out with elliot we'll supply him with the voles uh, it's great that he's found the funding he's found and there's a lot of good water vole habitat there they'll do fine mm. and yes there'll be bits of work that need to be done be it coppicing or, or or the creating you know of other bays or inlets whatever you need to do but that's something you can involve people in yeah and and for way too long i mean in nature conservation it's become an, a, a, an operational area, area area for a small band of elitists who think they know it all and when it comes to it, the decisions they make are commonly not in the interests of the species that they're supposed to be responsible for, and they're not in the interests of people. We never listen to what other people say. We never listen to what wider society wants. So I think the opportunity that you guys have as a an interface be, between this, um, oh, you know, almost specialized guild of people who have the ability to do something but who don't have this reach out ability that you have into communities to get people enthusiastic about the techie pits of, of what we've done is absolutely it's it's fundamental 
it's changing the relationship we have with nature. Yeah. So I, 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 I mean, I, have, as I say, I have no idea of what the habitats and ailing are like, but if I were you and I were Elliot, I'd be looking at the water bowls and I'd be saying, actually, you know, these rivers are good for beavers as well. We want a license. You give us this community well, in the middle of London a license. We want beavers here. Well, you can bloody ask for it. There's nothing in the world to say you can't. And if you get onto your politicians and you make enough of a fuss, you might just get them. And 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 if you get those animals, then you get the natural force that starts to turn those landscapes back round and heal the damage we've done. Yeah. And this island, this planet needs them very much. So I wouldn't be despondent about it. I would just see it as being a stepping stone um, onto something else. And just to finish on this, though, I, 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 just the other day, um, we had a, a girl out here doing, I think she was doing a month's work experience, lovely kid. And she's on the board of London National Park. Um, she's, I think yeah. they have junior advisors, not quite sure how it works. Yeah, I know them well, And she yeah. was having a chat about it and, she, you know, really didn't quite understand what, what you could do from an inspirational point of view. And we had a chat about beavers, and I cannot see why some of those river systems wouldn't support them. At the end of the day, we know they were there in the past. There's plenty of archaeology for this animal in London. But the other thing you could be looking to do, if you just want a really simple, obvious discussion of changes, why don't you get some aviaries up in the London parks and start releasing white storks? There's no earthly reason why one day those birds shouldn't be nesting on the roof of St. Paul's Cathedral, swirling and soaring back in every spring to, 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 to build clatter on top, you know, perhaps to form a colony and to feed their chicks like pterodactyls up there. You just think of the effect that those whales have coming up the Thames have ha has had on urban people yeah. in an urban yeah. environment who see so little that's real. You did something like that you do something that really gripped people's imagination and, and put what you're doing. And, and, and London is a natural wonder quite firmly on the map. Well, Derek, you're um, inspiring me now because I was saying to Elliot, I'm for sure going to start with harvest mice. But now I'm thinking of just climbing the ladder to beavers straight away. <laughs> do it. Put your application in tomorrow. Yeah. At the end of the day, all they could do is say no, and they're going to have to have a bloody good reason for doing it now because the politicians have told them to do this. And they're going to have to do it. Yeah, no, I've been mischievously talking about beavers on the Brent for quite a while. So um, <laughs> we will look into it for sure. <laughs> good, good. Well, good. look, Derek, it's been brilliant, brilliant having you on. Um, just to finish, because I know we are running fairly short on time. Um, obviously, we're seeing, you know, rewilding getting very, very popular. It's almost become a bit of a buzzword. Everyone's rewilding their land now. Um, do you see that as a positive thing? And also, do you see there being... Um, becoming a divide now between the true rewilders and the kind of traditional conservation movement? I think the tra traditional conservation movement, though there are worthy people there and they have done what they can, it's time to reconstruct. And I am not sure um, that, that, that some of the, the organizations stuffed to the gills with people who can identify a spring tail well um, are, are the kind of organizations that can actually start to rebuild. Because rebuilding has been easy to destroy and rebuilding is, is going to require a completely different set of mental challenges. The idea of rewilding, rewilding is not the word I'd like to use. The word that the Dutch use for this is new nature. And, and, and when we start to talk about new nature, we start to talk about not going going back to a time that was halcyon, but going forward to a future that's better. And that future is going to be a complex one because it may mean that, you know, you turn around and look at things like the guilds of exotic crayfish that inhabit our rivers and the, and the marsh frogs that, um, you know, team in places like Stodbarsh outside Canterbury and say, you know, actually, see these introduced species. They're a good thing. They're a really, really good thing because they're out there absolutely providing a wealth of food in a landscape where there is no other food for the species that require them. And, mm. and, and having the mental agility to adapt to that kind of view of nature is something that I'm not sure that some of the guys who were good in the past are going to be able to do. And it's going to mean that you're going to have to have people who are used to production you know, who are not just there to produce windy reports and criticize, they're there to actually produce a result that's real. And they're going to have to be much yeah. more multi-skilled. It's not yeah. just, I mean, some of the old skills that are there with regard to plants and recreation of complex pollen-rich environments, you know, the, the organizations like the Wildlife Trust have them. 
But some of the other skills like, you know, captive breeding cranes to extend their range in Britain or or thousands of water voles or wildcats or, or moor frogs or whatever else, you know, at the end of the day, they don't. And it's going to be a combination, you know, of, 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 of almost a Darrellian way of viewing things, you know, with elements of farming if you're going to manage big animals well, um, you know, with elements yeah. of hunting too if you're going to manage big animals well. But, but the whole thing being pointed quite squarely as, as, as this great projectile at restoring nature on, on a landscape scale. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and you'll have seen, I think you saw my announcement last week that I'm uh, launching AgriWild, new rewilding venture for the future. Um, would you have any pearls of wisdom for someone who is uh, just embarking on, on that kind of journey now? Stick with it. Be determined. Don't take no for an answer. And at the end of the day, if, you, if you're obstructed, go for the, the soft edges at the corners. You'll always find a way around. Just find them. Keep at it. You're right. Yeah. Do it. Make a difference. Great. That's what you need to do. Great. Thank you very much. Um, what's next for you, Derek? I know you're um, working quite hard on um, wildcat reintroduction in the south of England, yeah? Cats. I think cats are next. I think we've talked about yeah. this long enough. There are plenty of people breeding them now. There's a political dimension to it. There are landowners who have to be won over persuaded. There are some things we need to do, but we need to set a timescale and agenda for restoring the wildcat to England, and then we need to get on with it. We've talked about it long enough. We've had a few years. Now's the time to start doing it, and that's absolutely what I'm focused on doing next. Great, great. Um, is there a, t- a kind of a time scale? Do you think you'd be releasing cats in the next five years? I would like to think we'd make a start in 2022. Yeah. I cannot see any good reason why we shouldn't. At the end of the day, with things which require a degree of courage and a degree of adaptation, it's like learning to swim. Um, you know, and, and part of learning to swim is learning to dive. And the best thing you'd do is get to the end of that board and realize when it's time to jump. And it's time to jump now. And when you start to, 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 to appreciate it's time to jump, all you've got to do is hope like hell there's water in the pool. If there's water in the pool, the landing will be soft and you'll be fine. Um, and it's now time to jump as far as the cats are concerned. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. All right, well, look, we'll finish there. Derek, thanks so much again um, for coming on. Um, I would recommend anyone listening to uh, buy the book. It is absolutely brilliant, Bringing Back the Beaver. Um, and just as a kind of a, a closing statement, Isabella Tree, the author of Wilding and um, from NEP, Rewilding Estate, um, wrote in the foreword, perhaps Derek's greatest contribution yet to the future of the beaver in Britain is his ability to break down barriers, bash heads together, inform, cajole, inspire and excite as he does so convincingly in this refreshingly <laughs> candid, candid book. I think it's a brilliant quote and definitely summarises um, what I've seen of your your attitude towards uh, the, the annoyances of, uh, of the conservation world. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks again for joining us on Sean's Wildlife Podcast. Um, We are racking up the episodes now. Um, As I've said before, all production costs are covered by myself. So if you do want to support the the podcast, you can do so on ACAST Supporter uh, just as a one-off donation. We would really appreciate it. And tune in in the next couple of weeks for a brand new episode. (laughs) 